You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, We could use a good sex scandal right about now, one or two or three, to distract us, if only for a moment, from the state of the world, which is, as I'm sure I don't need to tell you, not good. Now, when I talk about a good sex scandal, I don't mean anything non-consensual or clerical, and I don't mean something like the New York Post finding out a paramedic has an OnlyFans account because paramedics aren't paid for shit, and then outing her and ruining her life, which happened just a couple of years ago. No, those aren't good sex scandals. What I prefer, and longtime listeners are no doubt familiar with my sex scandal preferences, what I prefer is some family values conservative asshole getting caught doing something, well, to be honest, getting caught doing something I might have signed off on in a professional capacity if someone who wasn't a conservative family values Republican wrote in and asked for my okay to go do that thing. And you know what? There was a really good sex scandal like that just a few weeks ago, but it kind of fell through the cracks because the news is what the news is right now. But I don't think we can afford to let a good sex scandal go to waste. Not at the moment. We need sex scandals right now, like audiences during the Depression needed Busby Berkeley musicals. So for you, for my listeners, I'm going to reach into the crack this sex scandal fell into. I am going to grease up my arm to the elbow and reach deep into this crack and pull this sex scandal out and share it with you because I care. All right. Without a doubt, you all remember that ad the Club for Growth ran against Howard Dean in 2004 or not. Most of you probably don't even remember who Howard Dean is. He was the Democratic governor of Vermont, and he ran against George W. Bush in 2004, which is back when we all innocently believed that George W. Bush would go down in history as the worst president we'd ever had or ever would have. Dean, for a moment, for a few months, was insanely popular with young people. You could say Howard Dean was Bernie Sanders before Bernie Sanders became Bernie Sanders. And for a hot minute there in 2004, it really looked like Dean might get the Democratic nomination. So the Republicans threw everything they could at him in an infamous ad created by the Club for Growth. They accused Dean of, well, being every elitist Democratic stereotype. So in the ad, an elderly couple is leaving a diner because, of course, they're leaving a diner always with the fucking diners. And the elderly couple is asked what they think of Howard Dean. And here's what they say. Well, I think Howard Dean should take his tax hiking, government expanding, latte drinking, sushi eating, Volvo driving, New York Times reading, body piercing, Hollywood loving, left wing freak show back to Vermont where it belongs. I remember thinking at the time, really, I do, honestly, I do. I remember thinking at the time, you could slip life swapping into that ad so easily. Tax hiking, government expanding, latte drinking, sushi eating, Volvo driving, wife swapping, New York Times reading. It just fits. It kind of flows. But, of course, no Democrat had been outed as a swinger at that time. So it wasn't in there. If a single Democrat had been outed as a swinger, it would have been. But now, if anyone's ever going to make a version of this classic attack ad with wife swapping in it, it's going to have to be an attack ad that attacks a Republican candidate, not a Democratic one. 
Because there is one politician out there who is an unapologetic swinger, and it's not a Dem. It's Stan Pulliam. He is another small-town Republican mayor. I seem to have a thing lately for small-town Republican mayors. But this one isn't fighting the creation of a red light district and a bunch of ice fishing huts on a frozen lake. Stan Pulliam is the mayor of Sandy, Oregon, population 11,000, suburb of Portland, and Pulliam has ambitions. He wants to be governor of Oregon, and he's currently seeking the GOP nomination. And he is, and I'm quoting from his campaign website here, a proud pro-life, pro-Second Amendment, pro-medical freedom, cough, cough, anti-vaxxer, and pro-private property rights conservative. He's a loud Trump supporter. He's endorsed the big lie that Donald Trump won the 2020 election, which Donald Trump did not do. And Pulliam says on his campaign website that Donald Trump did not incite a violent mob to storm the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, which we all watch that motherfucker damn well do. Pulliam also wants to bring Republican voter suppression efforts to Oregon. And, and Pulliam recently appeared on One American News Network, or One American News Network, which is home of the truly lunatic right-wing fringe, where he condemned Portland, Oregon, as a city full of dangerous and deranged and degenerate liberals. The good people of Sandy, Oregon, the people Pulliam represents, are frightened of the people of Portland, Oregon, says their mayor. But there was a time, not too long before that appearance on One American News Network, when Pulliam was only too happy to fuck with Portland, or to fuck with Portlanders. Hi, everyone, read the message Pulliam posted to the public Facebook page of a swingers group in Portland that he and his wife joined in 2016. Mackenzie and I are excited to be added to your little community. Some of you we have already had the pleasure to meet, and we look forward to getting to know the rest of you. Credit to Willamette Week in Portland, Oregon, which broke the story. And the story went places. It got some traction. Republican candidate for governor engages in wife swapping. But it was quickly drowned out by bigger, worse, and more important stories. But attention must be paid. And really, if we can't take note of this story here on my show, where can we take note of it? So I'm going to note a couple of things. I want to highlight that Pulliam did not deny it. He probably couldn't deny it because there were Portlanders at these parties that he went to with his wife. He did say that it's a private sexual and family matter, which it would be, or that would have some credibility if Republicans hadn't spent decades politicizing the private sexual choices and family structures of others. He also refused to drop out of the race because he says being a swinger or having been a swinger, this is behind Stan and McKenzie, having been a swinging couple makes him a better and more relatable candidate. Quote, I think people can relate from all different parts of the state who have been involved in marriages, Stan told the Sandy Post. There are different stages of marriage and different ebbs and flows. I'm not sure if he's classifying watching other men fuck your wife as an ebb here. That would be tide going out or as a flow. That would be tide coming in, but it's definitely one or the other. Oh, and the Sandy Post, decent local newspaper, lousy, anal, insertable. Also, Pulliam is out there arguing that swinging in the past is entirely consistent with his small-town, down-home conservative values because he's for freedom. And the government says Stan shouldn't be telling us who we can sleep with. Don't we all remember how it was the freedom-loving Republicans who supported repealing 
anti-gay and anti-straight sodomy laws, the kinds of sodomy laws that Stan and his wife violated at those parties, and freedom-hating Democrats who wanted to keep sodomy laws on the books. Uh, yeah, we don't remember that because that is not what happened. Republicans backed and still back sodomy laws that criminalize consensual sexual conduct between adults, not Democrats. But I'm going to reach across the aisle here. Or I'm going to reach around Stan and say that I agree with him. I don't think the government should be telling us who we can sleep with before or after or if we marry. But the government also shouldn't be telling us we can't use contraceptives or get abortions. And in my experience, the same people who don't want us using birth control or getting abortions don't want us spit roasting the wives of small town mayors while those small town mayors watch or spit roasting small town mayors while their wives watch, which of course I'm all for. While I would never endorse the Republican mayor of a small town for governor or anything else, the spit roasting of spouses at sex parties in Portland, that I can endorse. In fairness to Stan, he wanted us to know that if anyone was getting spit roasted at those parties, it wasn't him. I'm a heterosexual male, Stan told the Sandy Post, lousy insertable, and I've only personally engaged in heterosexual activity. Apparently, Mrs. Pulliam was not available for comment. In a video posted to his Twitter account after the scandal broke, Stan, whose case of gay face is almost as severe as his case of gay voice, so you can go to Stan's Twitter feed and see for yourself why Stan might have wanted to get out in front of accusations that something gay might have been going on at those parties. Anyway, Stan, in a video posted to his Twitter, reflected on the week he'd had after the scandal broke. Hi, everyone. Mayor Stan here uh, with Mackenzie doing some takeout after after a long day. So how was your guys' this week? Ours? Well, it was, it was interesting. Stan has amazingly not dropped out of the race. Stan has also amazingly raised more money than anyone else running for the GOP nomination in Oregon. And it looks like Stan might, less surprisingly, get Trump's endorsement, which would put him over the top. And the attack ad that's coming, if Stan is the nominee... Well, it kind of writes itself. What do I think of Stan Pulliam? Well, I think Stan Pulliam should take his gun-hugging, deadly virus-spreading, insurrection-excusing, Trump-enabling, big-lie-spreading, wipe-swapping, Breitbart-reading freak show back to Sandy, Oregon, where it belongs. Well, everything but the wipe-swapping. Gotta go to Portland for that. All right, coming up on today's show, lifestyle clubs. What are they? And how do you find one that Stan Pulliam isn't in. I try to alleviate a straight dude's worries and on the Magnum strap in tight because we have got a what do you got about the world's worst sounding disaster that has ever made the medical literature. And a quick correction. Last week I said Pornhub had banned people in Russia from accessing their website and all the porn on it. Apparently that was not true. Snopes busted that. Sorry about spreading that little bit of disinformation. Russians can still see porn on Pornhub. Maybe Pornhub should do something about that and join the sanctions campaign. All right, let's get to it. Hi, Dan. 30-something cis straight guy here in Philadelphia calling with a question about hooking up at lifestyle clubs, which is not something that I know anything about at present. I'm calling because I'm I'm single, I'm on the apps, and I match with someone who is married, but in an E&M relationship, 
And we're having a conversation about what that would mean if we got together, if we hooked up. And it seems very intriguing, very promising. And then she says, the terms of this ENM relationship are that she can only hook up with people at a lifestyle club, which actually wasn't even a term I'd ever heard before. Uh, I guess it's, you know, I've looked it up. I Googled it. It seems like it's a public sex club. So she says she can only do this because that guarantees that it's safer. Okay, that sounds great to me. That, that, that takes some of the, uh, the weirdness out of it for her, that we're in this kind of semi-public, semi-private environment. If she feels like that's for her safety, uh, I'm totally on board, except <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. I had to Google what a lifestyle club was. I'm not familiar with this arrangement at all, and I just feel like a total newbie here. I guess my main concern is I'm mostly interested with hooking up with this one person. If I go to a lifestyle club, is the expectation going to be that there's going to be a lot of swapping and other people? I mean, I don't know what it's like inside. Can I, I mean, can I go on a little tour first or is there like a book I can read or something? And then on top of this, this request that she's making seems reasonable to me, but it's also totally foreign to me. Is this like a regular dynamic that people have? Uh, have you heard of this before? Is this somehow, is it maybe a scam? Is she like a recruiter for the lifestyle club and she wants to get me to buy a membership there or something? Anything you can do to clarify this for me would be amazing. Thank you very much. It could be a scam. Anything could be a scam. But I think it's unlikely to be some sort of membership-boosting scam that a lifestyle club, which is basically a bathhouse for straight people where couples go together, no lifestyle club is going to want to run a scam that ups the numbers of single straight men who have memberships, who are standing around. It's really important for lifestyle clubs that are for heterosexuals or bisexual women and heterosexual men to have a balance, to have an equal number of men and women there. Because if there are too many men, women don't feel safe. And if there are too many men, women flee. A lifestyle club is actually a pretty good venue for a woman in an open relationship, an ethically non-monogamous relationship. It's a pretty good venue for her to arrange to have uh, her hookups with, with men, not that she's meeting at the club, but that men she's meeting online or on dating apps, as opposed to going to your apartment or meeting up in a hotel room. You know, the cliche of the pretty woman who lures a guy is not luring a guy, or the cliche, the uh, urban legend, is not a woman who lures a guy to buy a membership in a lifestyle club to boost their roles, to ruin the club, actually, to destroy the club in the long run, because then there'll be too many male members. The cliche is the woman who lures the guy to a hotel room where then he wakes up six hours later in a bathtub full of ice missing both his kidneys. I think you're safer going to this lifestyle club. Lifestyle clubs usually have websites. You say you found the website. They often have fact sheets, frequently asked questions. Uh, often there's a contact where you can email someone if you have a couple of questions. And you should know, going to a lifestyle club, no one is required to do anything or anyone. It is really common for couples to go to lifestyle clubs and only have sex with each other. Just sex in, you know, an erotically charged environment. Maybe they're voyeurs and they want to see other people having sex or being watched having sex themselves. And there's no pressure for that couple to swap or sleep with other people. They may get hit on. They may get offers. But... There's no pressure. 
I did a kind of uh, a whole chapter in a book about organized heterosexual swinging. And one of the things that I was surprised to discover and then it made a kind of intuitive sense afterwards is that these spaces are very matriarchal. They're very much run for the, the good ones, the ones that last, for the safety and comfort of the women who are there. Because the whole thing, again, collapses if women feel unsafe and the women leave and then you've got a bunch of straight guys standing around with their dicks in their hands and nothing and no one to do. So it makes sense to me that this woman, if there's an active, established lifestyle club in her area that she is familiar with and has a membership at, to want to plan her hookups with new men there as opposed to at her home where maybe that's one of the rules with her and her husband that no hookups in our house or at your apartment where she may feel not on her own turf, not safe. It makes sense that she would arrange to have hookups at this lifestyle club where there are going to be witnesses, other people around where often there are, you know, the people who run it sometimes bouncers. So if she shows up and has a bad feeling about you and turns you down and you as some, not saying you call her would do this, but some straight men have a bad reaction to rejection. If she was in your apartment and wasn't feeling it and wanted to go, she would have to worry about what kind of reaction you might have. And she'd have no backup. If you were in a hotel room, same deal. If you're in a lifestyle club, there's a whole bunch of other people around, including the people who run the club, including potentially bouncers, and you were to have, worst case scenario, a bad reaction if she wasn't feeling it, or when you guys met face-to-face, she didn't want to go through with it. Yeah, makes sense to me why she would want to plan at least your first meetup at this club. So, if I were you, and I really wanted that pussy, I would go. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old cis straight woman living in LA, and I'm calling because I slept with my ex, who is currently in a relationship. We broke up a little over two years ago, and since then, he has been with this woman for over a year. They just moved in together. We had a messy, toxic breakup, so I dropped contact because I wasn't truly over him. And then recently, due to a real lapse in judgment on my part, I let him back into my life. Despite being in what I know is a monogamous, completely closed relationship, he's been flirting. And what I thought was jokingly pursuing me for about six weeks. A few nights ago, he came over, we got drunk, and then we fucked. In the heat of the moment, I lost my head and I let him convince me to keep it a secret and that we could keep seeing each other secretly. In the days since, I've come to my senses, realized what I did was fucked up and cut contact with him. I've also scheduled a session with my therapist to deal with the reason I did this on my end. My question for you is, do I need to tell his girlfriend what happened? All three of us work in the same close-knit and gossipy industry. She is an acquaintance of mine, and I know through friends of friends that she is a good and kind person. I also know from him that their monogamy is an important part of the relationship to her. My friends are telling me the right thing to do is to come clean and give her all the information. Maybe I'm being a coward because I know she will resent me for this, but I would rather wash my hands of this fucked up thing, take the secret with me, and let him manage his own relationship. So, Dan, what do I do? Someone needs to come clean here. But it's not you. It's him. If you work in the same small gossipy industry as your ex-boyfriend and his current girlfriend and some of your friends already know that you hooked up with your ex-boyfriend a number of times, despite the fact that he's in a monogamous relationship with a new woman who they also know, there's a very real chance this is going to get back to your ex-boyfriend's current 
girlfriend. And that should concern your ex-boyfriend. I don't think the right thing to do here is to go have a conversation with the new girlfriend and blow up their relationship and his life. I think the right thing to do is go to your ex-boyfriend and say, I'm not going to say anything, but I'm not going to lie. And if she asks me what happened, I'm going to tell her. And there's a very real chance here that she's going to find out. And you might, if you want this relationship to survive the crisis of your or our infidelity, the way we cheated or the way you cheated on her with me, if you want your relationship with her to survive that coming crisis, you should probably get in front of it and tell her yourself. I'm generally con the ex going to the current to tell them that the person they're with now slept with them. It's really hard to control for being small or petty or vindictive or seeking retribution. It feels like I'm doing the right thing. I'm telling this woman something that she needs to know. Better to sit back confident that she is going to discover what you discovered about your ex. He's a shitty person in her own time. And probably pretty soon. And you don't have to do more than you've already done. And there's no way for you to be the messenger here. You're not going to exonerate yourself from the wrong that you committed against her or participated in being committed against her by, you know, riding the white horse in now to tell her this truth. You should have stayed the fuck away from your ex-boyfriend. I would encourage you to stay the fuck away now from your ex-boyfriend. And that includes staying the fuck away from his relationship. Staying the fuck away from his current girlfriend. Not barging in to rescue her from him. You didn't care about her or her feelings when you were fucking him. Let's not pretend to care about her or her feelings now. All right, maybe that's too mean. Maybe you actually do care about her. There have been times when I've done terrible things myself that wronged people that I legitimately did care about. It's possible. I'm just going to put it out there. Possible you care about her. Even so, she will not perceive you that way. You are not the right messenger. And if a whole lot of people in your gossipy industry already know what happened, a messenger is on their way to her. And it doesn't have to be you. Hello, Dan. I'm a cis woman in her early 30s, and I'm calling today because I need advice. I have two young kids, and I feel like I have a 32-year-old kid as well. My fiancé and I met in 2018, and after only three months of dating, we found out that I was pregnant. Of course, at that point, we didn't truly know anything about each other, but I've tried hard to turn the initial lust into love. Things were bumpy at the start with growing pains on both sides, but we got through it. I got pregnant with our second son in 2020, and that's when things really started to change in the relationship. I feel like since then, the life has been sucked out of me, and I'm a shell of the fun, confident, and energetic person I used to be. I know it's not just motherhood and the mental load of caring everything for our family because I feel almost recharged spending time with my kids, and I'm the almost sole caregiver for them. I think it's a result of my relationship that's made me feel insecure, unhappy, and lonely. It's been really hard, and I've been forgiving of him cheating, his frequent overconsumption of alcohol, which progressively got worse after we found out I was pregnant, as well as many threats of leaving me after I set firm boundaries with his drinking while being near our kids. He once went as far as to turn his phone off, not show up all night until the sun came up the next day, 
broke a coffee pot and passed out with glass all over the floor. And that behavior to me is unacceptable with young kids in the house and is one thing I'm not willing to compromise on. I feel like the dynamic we've gotten into is like a parent-child dynamic and I've had to constantly set boundaries with him on things that I feel like should be common sense at this age. I also do his laundry, clean up after him, and all this has resulted in me having zero sex drive or desire for intimacy. I guess my question is, should I end our relationship and prioritize my happiness or try to continue to tough it out for the sake of my kids growing up in a home with both parents? Is it worth getting back into couples therapy again and trying to rebuild? I just want to do right by my kids, and I'm terrified that at the end of all of this, we won't have a healthy co-parenting dynamic, and our children will suffer as a result of that. They didn't ask to be brought into this world and what now feels like a broken home, and I truly just want to be a positive example for them and help shape them into the best versions of themselves so that they can one day be loving and supportive partners to a lucky boy or girl if they choose to pursue romantic relationships. You say after you realize you're pregnant that first time that eventually you got through it with growing pains on both sides. Listening to the rest of your call, it doesn't sound like he's grown much, and it doesn't sound like you're happy in this relationship, you say that you're a shell of the fun, confident, energetic person you used to be, not just from the stress and exhaustion of parenting two very young children, but because you're also not parenting this guy. You're putting up with his drinking, the chaos, the drama of accommodating him in your life. And for what? So that your kids have both parents in the home, but one of those parents is clearly an unhappy person with a drinking problem who does not want to be in that home, who is making the other parent, that would be you, fucking miserable. That's not a good situation for those kids. I have in the past come down on the side of make it work for the kids, but only if the relationship that's being made to work is a low-conflict relationship, and there is a partnership there that can function and is functional, functions functionally. That's not the case here. You're recharged when you spend time with your kids alone. You're exhausted when the meteor that is this person that you had these kids with slams into you and your family and your home and your little planet that you're on with your kids, you need to end this relationship. And from the way he's behaving, whether he's consciously aware of this or not, he wants out. He wants you to end it. He doesn't want to be the guy who abandoned his fiance. Thank God you haven't married this motherfucker yet. He doesn't want to be the guy who abandoned his fiance and kids. He would rather be the guy who, you know, gets to swan around and play the victim and get fucking hammered playing the victim because you took his kids and left. When someone wants to be left and they engage in this kind of behavior, it escalates over time. He, I, you know, based on what you've shared, I think he wants you to leave him and he will continue to up the ante. He will continue to drink and be chaotic and unhelpful and exhausting and untrustworthy and dangerous until you go. Go now. Don't marry this motherfucker. Leave him and have a life that 
makes you feel recharged, makes you feel happy with your kids without him in the home. All right, that's my advice for you. And I'm building a little wall here between the advice I just gave you and the advice I want to give everyone else. I'm happy for you. I'm happy you have these children in your life. I'm happy that they make you happy. It sounds like you are a good parent. Please go parent and love these kids in a healthy single parent home, which is better than an unhealthy, dysfunctional double parent home. I wish you the best. This is advice for other people. If you're seeing someone for a couple of months and you find out you're pregnant and you really don't know anything about each other, that's when you get an abortion. That's not when you have a kid. I'm sure some people are angered hearing me say that. I think abortion is a social and moral good and abortion should be normalized, particularly places where it's still fucking legal in states where that's still fucking possible. And in instances like this, you can have an abortion and then have a child with that same person that you had an abortion with. If as you get to know them better, you decide this is someone you want to have kids with and be with for the rest of your life. You can conceive again with that same person. If you so choose at a later date. Hey Dan, how's it going? I am a 27 year old heterosexual male from Chicago and I've got a question for you. So I wanted to ask, started seeing a girl as of recent, and there's two kinks that I wanted to bring up to her. One being, I think, a little more common than the other. The first kink is just cross-dressing. I just sometimes like to wear panties and bras. And this is just typically just disguised underneath, you know, regular clothes, so no one can ever tell unless, you know, clothes are off. And then the other kink I have, which I don't even, I looked it up online and I really couldn't find much about it, but um, I sometimes like to wear uh, women's sanitary products, so like maxi pads. These are two kinks that I don't know how to display, tell this partner that I'm seeing about. It's a real dilemma for people with serious kinks. Kinks like yours, which I would count as serious because some people would have reactions, have feelings, have thoughts about them, and not always kind thoughts or kind feelings about them. And the dilemma is, do you go out there and you find somebody who's kinky? Or you, do you go out there and meet somebody who might not be kinky? Or might be, you know, you're dating this woman, she doesn't know about your kinks. It's possible that she has kinks she hasn't disclosed to you. Less likely that a woman would have kinks that she hasn't disclosed to her male partner because women tend to be less kinky than men are. But you either go out there and find somebody who's kinky or you go out there and find somebody who is presumed to be vanilla and at some point you lay your kink cards down on the table. And the, the real conundrum for kinky people is that you know that if you put your kinks out there first, a lot of people who you might have really liked, might have vibed with, as the kids were saying, until they heard me say it, at which point they promptly stopped saying it, would have passed on you. They would have seen your kinks listed on your Tinder or Hinge or Christian's Mingle or Farmer's Only ad and just swiped left or right, whichever was appropriate to say no, and said no and never given you a chance. 
And there are so many kinky people out there who are in wonderful relationships with partners who are GGG for them, who go there for them, and may have even grown into kink with their partners, where the person who was kinky didn't disclose at first. They waited for someone who might have rejected them out of hand if they disclosed their kinks right away to get to know them. And then, you know, when you lay your kink cards down on the table, the person that you're with is weighing assumptions they might have about kinky people or assumptions they might have about your kinks against the person that they've gotten to know. And you're not a monster. You're a good person and you're a good lay. I think one of the things that you're doing when you wait to lay your kink cards down on the table is you're having a bunch of vanilla sex with somebody for a while so that they can see or that they do see and that they know once you lay your kink cards down on the table that you can have quote unquote normal sex and enjoy it and be good at it, which is something they might factor in after you've laid your kink cards down on the table uh, when they're making the decision about whether to continue to see you or not and continue to date you or not. All right, so obviously you don't have the luxury of the option A here, disclosing in advance of getting into a relationship with someone. You're already in this relationship. How do you roll this out? You just open your mouth and force the words out. You know, that you sometimes like to wear a bra and panties under your clothes, and that's a dirty secret for you and makes you feel sexy and naughty and as if you've got hidden depths and contain multitudes. And some of those people in your multitudes are wearing bras and panties right now. Most women are going to be able to wrap their heads around that. It's not too great a leap. I think for a woman who understands why her boyfriend might want to wear a bra and panties to understand why her boyfriend might also want to wear a sanitary pad as an extension of sorts of the kink of the bra and panties thing of the dirty secret thing of the wearing articles of clothing or articles of sanitation that are traditionally associated with the other sex, the opposite sex in your case. But you know, highly likely one of my tips for people when you're going to lay your kink cards down on the table, highly likely that the person you're disclosing this to is going to have a bad reaction at first that you're going to get an ew yuck out of the gate. And if that's going to shatter you or shred your self-esteem, maybe don't lay your king cards down on the table or only date people that you've met through, you know, fetish websites or who read a list of your kinks on your dating profiles on normie or vanilla websites. Because when you lay those king cards down, you are likely to get a negative reaction on impulse because sex negativity runs so deep because kink phobia runs so deep and people will have a reaction of ooh, yuck, no, when what the reaction they're really having is, huh, what? Oh, but they frame it in a negative way and it comes out ooh, yuck, no. So you have to be able to endure that ooh, yuck, no and get past it and keep talking and You have to do it without being ashamed of your kinks. People don't pick their kinks. Our kinks, in a sense, pick us. And you want to be with someone who knows who you are sexually, knows what turns you on, someone that you can be fully honest and fully open with about your desires, your erotic imagination, and you want the person that you're with to feel that they can be open with you in the same way and if the person you're disclosing these things to can't see the compliment 
in the disclosure and they can't see the freedom that your disclosure grants them you know, to make their own disclosures, their own requests, then they may not be someone that you want to waste your time on dating. Even if you weren't kinky, you wouldn't want to be with somebody you couldn't be yourself with. You wouldn't want to be with somebody who looked at you being honest and making yourself vulnerable and didn't see in that uh, a person they wanted to be with or at least a person they wanted to try to make shit work with. Hey, Dan. I'm a queer 26-year-old femme from the States living abroad in Europe, and I just really want to have sex with someone. (laughs) But I'm so antisocial and so bad with anything online. Um, I want to kind of know a person before I have sex with them, and by that I mean maybe like 20 minutes of a good conversation. Anyway, I met someone and I've hung out with them a few times. We've gone to parties and talked, but I feel strong friend vibes in the way that I think are them being very polite. So silly question, but how do I ask this person to have sex without it getting weird? There's no having sex without someone asking. And you know what? It's always weird. Even when the answer is yes, it's always kind of weird. When you hit on someone, when you ask someone to have sex with you, the first time, the first thing I said to Terry, famously, was he came up uh, to the coat check where I was telling the drag queen a coat check that I thought that boy over there was really pretty. And Terry walked up and the drag queen said to me, tell him, and I looked at him and said, you have a pretty mouth, which is a really creepy fucking serial killery weirdo thing to say. And he looked at me and said, the better to eat you with. His answer was yes, essentially, yes. Uh, You can make use of that pretty mouth. And it was weird, and I felt weird and stupid. And yeah, so you just have to be okay with making things a little weird. You don't want to make things creepy. You don't want to make things coercive. So when you ask or telegraph your interest to someone and the answer is clearly an unambiguous, you know, verbalized no, or the answer, you know, that can be inferred clearly from them not being receptive to whatever vibe you're attempting to give up. The answer is no. Then you go the fuck away. And yeah, it made things weird for a little bit, but it only gets icky weird. It only gets unacceptably weird if you don't take no for an answer and you keep asking or restating the question. But yeah, you got to get comfortable with making it weird at least a little bit, at least around the edges, at least, and even it'll still be a little weird if the answer is yes, or you're never going to have sex with anybody. So this person that you kind of feel this weird contradictory feeling from you're getting these maybe mixed signals or maybe you're just misreading the signals or you can't see the signal and the noise. You can just go to this person and say, Hey, I'm kind of feeling like we might click sexually. I'm kind of attracted to you. And I was wondering if you feel the same way about me. And if the answer is yes, okay, you're going to feel weird for having said it, but you'll be happy you said it. And the answer is no, you'll feel weird for having said it and you'll feel a little bad about having been rejected, but that's life. And then you move on to make things weird with someone else who might say yes. 
And finally, you know, get good at online. That's something, that's a skill you're going to have to develop. Before the pandemic, the majority, the overwhelming majority of same-sex couples had met online. And now, and the plurality of opposite-sex couples had met online. And now, post-pandemic, I'm sure once the studies are in, it'll show that the overwhelming majority of opposite-sex couples, of all couples, opposite sex, same sex, whatever shade of queer or gender are meeting online and making it clear to people that you want at least 20 minutes of conversation before you move on to sex. That's not too much to ask. You're not saying I want to get to know you over a period of months, years, eons before we have sex. You're saying I want to have a good feeling about you. And that requires at the very least 20 minutes of conversation and anyone who isn't willing to make an investment of 20 minutes of conversation in you or me or anybody else that they want to sleep with, unless you're in a bathhouse or a dark room, they're not worth sleeping with. Hey Dan. So I had a question for you. I brought up the idea of an open relationship to my soon to be husband and he's, Definitely, of course, okay with having sex with other women, but it's unsure about me having sex with other men. He's very open-minded, and I think that he'll come around. But another issue that we've been having in our sexual relationship is him not able to stay hard. I think that he should take over-the-counter pills or maybe a Viagra. He's about 28, about to be 29, and I'm not sure if that would mess with his libido or have any permanent effects on him, which is what he's worried about. But it makes me upset because he did that in a past relationship where he would take over-the-counter dick pills to maintain his sex drive. This is not something that's new. He's struggled with being able to stay hard. And so I think opening up the relationship to where he could have sex with other women would be amazing, but I'm also worried that he may not be able to stay hard. There are no ED medications that are over the counter. As far as I know, all actual ED medications, we're not talking about herbal supplements for sale at the truck stop checkout counter, require a doctor's prescription. So these aren't over the counter, the prescribed meds that you pick up at a counter at the pharmacy, but and they hand them to you over the counter, but they're not over the counter. That means you don't need a prescription. Your boyfriend will need a prescription. People don't take, men don't take, penis havers don't take ED meds to sustain their libido. They don't take ED meds to get horny. ED meds are not Spanish fly. They're not an aphrodisiac. ED meds make it possible for a guy who is horny to have the erection he would like to have at that moment, the reliable erection he'd like to have at that moment, And if your boyfriend is having problems around obtaining, maintaining, and sustaining, as they say, an erection, he should definitely look into the different kinds of ED meds that are available and are really, really effective. And the things he seems to believe about ED meds, that they're going to ruin his libido or somehow diminish his sex drive, that's not true. And he could talk that out with a physician and get some reassurance, and then you could get the hard dick to ride on that you'd like to have, which is an entirely separate issue from opening up the relationship. You would like to open the relationship. His response was he can see himself sleeping with other women, 
and he's comfortable with the, the idea of him getting to sleep with other women, but he's not so comfortable with the idea of you sleeping with other men. Huh. So yeah, I don't think an open relationship is in the offing here. And in the pressing for that open relationship, you may wind up offing the relationship that you're in now, which, you know, may not be such a bad thing, may not be something you want to avoid because if you would like to be in an open relationship and that's not the kind of relationship that he would like to be in, then you guys are not compatible in important ways or an important way. You may be sexually compatible when you're having sex with each other. You may be emotionally compatible in that you click and you enjoy each other's company and you respect him and he respects you, but you might not be relationally compatible and that you don't want the same kind of relationship model. If this is a Hail Mary pass open request, if the only reason you're asking to open the relationship is because he can't get or stay hard and you miss being dicked down, that's not a great reason to open a relationship. That's a problem that he needs to solve. And then you can move on to a conversation about opening the relationship if you want to open the relationship for opening the relationship's sake. If you're not just wanting to open the relationship to, you know, paper over the cracks. So yeah, your boyfriend needs to talk to not you about ED meds, not me. I'm not a doctor necessarily. I do know a lot about them, but I'm not a doctor about ED meds. He needs to talk to his doctor about ED meds and he needs to get with the ED med program and start using them again as he's used them in past relationships. And then I would, if I were you, kick the can down the road, three months, six months, and then see if an open relationship is actually what you really want or if once he's dicking you down again the way you want to be dicked down, if that desire for an open relationship isn't there. But if it is, yeah, it doesn't get to be open for him and closed for you or he gets to sleep with women and you only get to sleep with women if you are not attracted to women and if it's dick you want and other men you want, you will have to issue an ultimatum that could wind up ending this relationship. And again, if he won't do anything about his dick and he wants this kind of sexist double standard where openness is concerned, eh, maybe it's not a relationship you want to work too hard to save. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they've published for a little segment we call What You Got. Joining me for this What You Got, Dr. Susan McDonald, Assistant Professor of Urology at Penn State Medical Center. Dr. McDonald, welcome to the Savage Lovecast. So what do you got? Thank you so much for having me. Um, I think you have all probably seen recently about my case report regarding an unusual presentation of inserting things into one's urethra. That's come up on the podcast before that some people for recreational purposes will insert things into urethra. There are legit medical purposes for, it's called sounding. That's what the kink is called. There's a legit medical purpose for sounding, but some people will do it recreationally. What Before we get to your particular case study, what is the legit medical reason that someone might insert something into your, their urethra? 
So occasionally people have narrowing of their urethra that either makes it difficult for them to urinate or perhaps difficult for us to do procedures we need to to get to kidney stones and other things. And in that case, we might use some uh, smooth metal rods to insert into the urethra to gently stretch it open safely in the context of a medical procedure uh, to get what we need to do done surgically. If someone is engaged in recreational sounding and they're using smooth metal rods that they sterilize and they're using sterile lubricant, is this a safe practice for people to engage in without medical supervision? Uh, So yes and no. As a general rule, I would say probably not the greatest idea to insert things into your urethra. However, uh, we have some data that suggests you know, maybe as much as 10 or 20% of the population uh, engages in urethral sounding. And in that case, I would say some general rules of thumb would be helpful. Firstly, lubrication is key. Secondly, use a smooth object. Uh, They do have a lot of metal sounds available. Um, I might recommend something bendable. There are silicone uh, instruments available, or you could get um, self-lubricated catheters from a supply store. And then a third rule of thumb would be um, if there's any resistance whatsoever, uh, you should stop what you're doing. I've watched a sounding. Um, I watched a lot of things in my time. And what I saw was a metal rod that was allowed to sink in with its own weight, not that, that wasn't pushed in, that wasn't shoved in. It was just sort of allowed to sink in. Uh, a question that sometimes comes up is when it comes to insertables for anal play, the recommendation is always a flared base, but I've never seen a urethral sound with a flared base. How do people prevent themselves from losing a sound inside? I'm so glad you brought that up because yes, a flared base is a great idea. It sounds sort of silly, but you you can actually lose things in your urethra and then trained urologists such as myself have to go fetch it. Uh, So uh, a flared base just prevents the urethra from kind of swallowing whole whatever you're putting in there. Um, the medical instrumentations, if one were to look on a search engine, uh, do not typically have a flared base. But again, those are designed to be used by physicians, typically. Um, there are some, um, you know, sex shops and websites where you can buy something designed for urethral sounding that has a flared base made out of silicone. Okay, let's talk about the case study you mentioned. Can you walk us through the details? Absolutely. So, A patient of mine was engaging in urethral sounding for uh, sexual gratification and inserted a small straw uh, into his urethra. Unfortunately, that straw happened to be attached to a can of spray foam insulation, like one would use to seal your window joints for bad weather. And the button was inadvertently pushed, and that spray foam insulation then essentially created an internal cast of their urinary tract, uh, the whole bladder and also the urethra as well, uh, which was challenging surgically to deal with because they had been instrumenting their urethra previously. So there were narrow places and wider places. Typically, um, in other cases where people insert objects into their urethra, these can be removed endoscopically, meaning with a small camera and sort of like a fishing net type instrument. Um, But in this case, that wasn't possible uh, because of the quantity of material in the location. Okay. As they say on the internet, the word inadvertently in in that sentence seems to be doing a lot of work. It wasn't this person's intent to press that button, and yet they inserted a straw attached to a can of spray foam insulation. 
I can only report what I was told and uh, know, and they were not the one who pushed the button. Oh my God, grimmer and grimmer. And as any, I've used spray foam. In addition to having watched a sounding once in my life, I have used spray foam insulation. It expands quickly and hardens fast. It does. What was the outcome for him? What was the treatment and, and what was the end result? So the patient uh, delayed care as often uh, people do when something untoward happens during sexual exploration. And they were having significant difficulty urinating, as you might imagine, and ended up in the emergency room. I suppose I would encourage all of your listeners out there, if something like this or its own unusual circumstance happens, we are not unfamiliar with these circumstances. So please come on down to the emergency room so we can get you the help that you need expeditiously. So in this instance, it had been several days. Um, and the patient was in discomfort and uh, obviously risking infection. So we had to go to the emergency, uh, so the operating room emergently to remove all that material. And unfortunately, like I said, we had to make several incisions to do so. Is he okay? Is he going to be okay? Well, it depends on your definition. There's, you know, damage to his urinary tract, uh, but he is living happy and healthy, yes. Okay, I'm very relieved to hear that. One of the recommendations we've been making on the show uh, during the pandemic over the last couple of years is emergency rooms are crowded, waits are long. Now is not a good time to be turning up in an emergency room because you lost something in your butt or I guess filled your urinary tract with <laughs> spray foam insulation, which is not to say I think people should endlessly put off sexual explorations, but people might want to err on the side of I guess, flared bases in all things and not allowing someone that you don't know well or can't trust to have their finger on the button of the spray foam insulation can attached to the straw that you slid into your urethra? You know, there's a good thing an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I, I think that is in play here. So I would say, like I said, lubrication, a flared base. And then as you would say on your show, uh, have a conversation about activities in advance, consensual partnerships, and talk about what is and isn't okay. And I would also add to that list sex toys that are sex toys, that are designed to be sex toys, that are quality sex toys, not improvised sex toys when it comes to insertables. An improvised insertable is a disaster waiting to happen. That is absolutely true. If you were to induce nightmares and go Googling case reports on things that people have lost in various orifices, it's usually an improvised household instrument that was grabbed in the heat of the moment. Uh, and planning is a much better uh, much better uh, thing to do in these situations. So Dr. McDonald, where can people who want to read this study, uh, who may not want to sleep tonight, uh, where can they find it? This case report is av available on urology case reports. And if you um, were to look at spray foam insulation and urethra, it will come right up readily on the internet. And you can see all of the pictures. <laughs> Dr. Susan McDonald, Assistant Professor of Urology at Penn State Medical Center. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone and sharing this with us. Thank you for having me. Hi, Dan. I have a question about vibrators. I am considering upgrading to one of those super power vibrators like Hitachi Magic Wand style deals. And I'm a little concerned about it being kind of like the death grip 
which you talk about quite a bit, how guys should not masturbate with a death grip because it desensitizes their penis. And my question is, first of all, wouldn't that happen? I can imagine that would happen if I'm using one of those powerful vibrators every time I masturbate. I don't have a partner right now, but up until now, I haven't had a problem coming based on manual or oral stimulation, but I can imagine myself kind of becoming dependent on this vibrator because it gives such good orgasms and not wanting to use my hand anymore. (laughs) And then by the time I get back to partnered sex, being totally desensitized where manual or oral stimulation doesn't do it for me anymore. And that would kind of be a bummer. I don't want to be dependent on a vibrator. So my question is, what's the advice here? Should I just alternate, like one time use the vibrator, the next time use my hand, or I don't know, if other people could share their experience, that would be good. Or if you have any advice, I'd be grateful. The advice for guys who are experiencing death grip syndrome, which is something I made up to describe a condition I frequently heard about on this show, something I frequently heard about from guys recalling into this show, the prescription is to mix things up, to vary those routines. Guys kind of develop a dependency on their tightly gripped fist working their cock in a way a mouth, an anus, or a vagina never could because they've been jacking off for five or ten years and using that particular grip, that particular sensation, uh, that intensity uh, of pressure in order to climax. And then many times these guys get to partnered sex and they can't ejaculate during oral, anal, vaginal, as much as they may be enjoying it. And then they pull out at a certain point and treat their dick to the stim that the dick is used to and grind it out at the end. Often their partners will write me because their partners will feel like they're doing something wrong or they're not arousing enough to get the guy there. And what I tell these guys is to use a lighter grip, vary their routine, use lubricant. And if they can only climax this way, spend six months or a year masturbating a lot, having a lot of sex and never deploying the death grip, never strangling their dick with their clenched right or left hand the way they used to. And if they don't come during a masturbation session, if they don't come during sex with their understanding partner who knows what they're doing and understands that they have a problem they're addressing, then they just don't get to come. And eventually, and I've heard from so many guys that this worked for, they begin to, their dicks adapt, new neural pathways are carved between the dick and the brain, which guys, that is not a very long neural pathway. And so it's not exactly digging the fucking Erie Canal to carve that new neural pathway. Same applies here. If you get a Hitachi Magic Wand, a powerful vibrator, and it gives you amazing orgasms and you're worried about becoming dependent on it when you've been able to climax from oral or just standard uh, fingers masturbation, mix it up. Use the vibrator sometimes. Don't use the vibrator other times. If it's been a while since you've climaxed uh, without using the vibrator, set the vibrator aside. If you have difficulty climax, you know, a little challenge, starving your twat out, making it wait, making it adapt, carving perhaps or reactivating an old neural pathway because those neural pathways already exist for you between your twat and your brain. That's how you incorporate that powerful vibrator and the different sensations that it can bring into your sex life without making yourself wholly dependent on it. Not that being wholly dependent on a vibrator is a bad thing. Some guys 
discover after trying to starve their dicks out for six months or a year that this is just how their dicks work. Their dicks, for some reason, perhaps a circumcision, some other reason, require the kind of pressure that only a clenched fist can provide. Those guys aren't broken any more than women who can't climax from oral, can't climax from vaginal penetration, which is most women, can't climax from digital stimulation of the clitoris uh, during vaginal penetration or just during a masturbation session, mutual or otherwise. Some women require that vibrator. And that doesn't mean that they're broken. That's just the way some of us work. Some of us require real slamming, tight, intense, focused stim to come. And bodies change as we age. And the same guy who had a kind of hair trigger sensitivity uh, on the you know approach to orgasmic inevitability, I love that phrase, at 18, at you know 48 or 58, may require firing on all cylinders, may require more input everywhere, you know, butt played with, tits played with, dirty talk firing at him as he's being stimulated, may require uh, some jacking off during sex to stay hard or to get himself to that point of orgasmic inevitability. And the same is true of women. Some women, as they age and their bodies change and pathways shift, suddenly discover, not suddenly discover, gradually discover that what they needed and what got them there has changed. And that doesn't mean we're defective or broken. It just means we're at different stages of life and we're finding new and different ways to continue to enjoy our bodies and the pleasure that our bodies are capable of giving us and giving others. So if you get that Hitachi magic wand now and you continue to mix it up and you're having great orgasms with the Hitachi and you're having good, solid, good, great, great orgasms with oral and digital and you find over time that you become more reliant on the Hitachi, that may not be dependency. That may not be a mistake you made in getting Hitachi. It could just be your body changing and evolving and continuing to grow over time and find new pathways to pleasure for you. Kia ora Dan, 33-year-old non-monogamous cis female dom, and I'm trying to get pregnant with my service slash tease and denial cis male sub. We've been trying for four months and already letting him come so often, it used to be once every six weeks, is getting boring. How can we keep this fun? I've got ovulation tests, so potentially we can narrow the time he's allowed to come to the minimum. But if I milk him or make him ruin his orgasms and then turkey paste her into me, does that affect the chance of conceiving? If I make him eat his cum out of me, does that affect anything? I'm doing all our usual bondage, degradation, humiliation stuff, but we both really want to bring back more of that denial vibe. Do you have any ideas to keep our sex sexy used vibes rather than utilitarian used vibes while keeping up the chance of conceiving? I think you may want to borrow a page from the Pope. Every once in a while, about twice a century, the Pope declares a jubilee, a jubilee year, a special year of remission of sins and universal pardon. During a jubilee year, slaves and prisoners were freed, debts were forgiven, and the mercies of God were made manifest. Seems to me that during this stage in your relationship and in your life where you're trying to get pregnant, you might want to declare a jubilee where your service sub, who usually isn't allowed to come or not allowed to come very often, and when he is allowed to come, it's a ruined orgasm or he's milked, you might just want to let him 
blow those loads and blow those loads deep into you. I am not a gynecologist or fertility specialist, but I know enough about people trying to get pregnant from watching my friends, many of them lesbians try to get pregnant with turkey basters and other things, that, uh, yeah, you don't want your sub eating his cum out of you. You want to throw your legs up and let his cum drip as far into you as it possibly can to increase the likelihood of conception. And you want him shooting during your fertile periods. You want him shooting up there as often as possible. So don't create hurdles for yourself here. And you can keep it sexy by reminding your service sub who is trying to fertilize you at this time that this, this stage, this period of his life where he gets to come in you a lot, that it's going to end. As soon as you are pregnant, it is over. And some dirty talk about that during this little jubilee that you're going to declare for your service sub may keep it sexy and hot and be less cumbersome for you, the person trying to get impregnated, uh, and less likely to interfere with conception than everything that you propose to keep it sexy. Keep it sexy with some dirty talk. Make sure he understands that this period in his life where he's blowing lots of loads and getting to enjoy those orgasms deep inside you, that it is temporary. Hi, Dan. I'm a cishet woman from Montreal, Quebec, and I've been married for about 15 years. I have kids 8 and 10. There's nothing super wrong with our relationship. We fight like everybody. We're pretty good partners. In general, it's it's fine, but I have very little in common with him. I don't I like the same things, not the same movies, not the same activities. We have a hell of a time choosing things to do, and we usually divide and conquer with the kids because we just don't like the same kind of things. I don't find him interesting or particularly smart or attractive. Uh, He's a pretty sexy looking guy, but I just really don't like him that way anymore. Uh, Our sex life was okay over the years, like a once a week thing, because that's what he needed. And I tricked myself with weed and booze to actually have the sex. And then I would be happy to have had it. He's pretty good in bed. All that is fine. But I would like to explore kink, which he has no interest in. And I asked to be monogamous when we We first had kids because I was like super unattracted to him and I thought it would help us, but he's completely close to that. Now that I've been sober for a year, I have no tricks available. And with COVID, we've been together more than we, you know, probably should. So in the last uh, four or five months, our sex has been less than once a week. And a few of those times it felt like incest (laughs) and I really didn't want to have it. So now I'm left with the question, like, is this over? Am I... Is it okay to want a partner that has things in common with me and that I want to have sex with? Or is this completely selfish to want to explode a pretty good relationship, pretty solid with, you know, a nice house and kids that are happy? Part of me yearns for freedom to not have this sex that I don't want anymore and leave. And also, you know, either be alone, sweet, sweet aloneness, or perhaps eventually find somebody that has way more in common than I with me than, than he does. Or the other part of me says I shouldn't explode a good marriage and potentially fuck up my kid's life for selfish reasons. Like, you don't like the sex, you find him boring and unattractive. Suck it up, buttercup. You're married for life now. Open her out. You're going to have to open this relationship or you're going to have to get out of it. Sounds like there's a lot that works here. You have a good and functional 
partnership and a low conflict relationship, at least when it comes to co-parenting together. But that list of things that aren't working about this marriage for you, it is long and it is deadly. Nothing in common. You don't like the same things. You don't like the same activities. You don't find him interesting. You don't find him smart. You can recognize that he is objectively attractive, but you are not attracted to him at all. You've apparently reached the siblingification state of a long, long long-ass term relationship. And how do you finesse that? Well, some people finesse that by going into a sexless marriage, by devolving into a state of sexlessness that is never directly addressed or really acknowledged because it's too explosive to face it squarely and what it means for the relationship and what it might mean for your kids if you two were to face that squarely. There's a lot at stake there. And so people will avoid facing that squarely and they will spend years, decades in a sexless relationship that makes them unhappy, but the alternative, the end of the relationship is scarier or they fear that they'll be unhappier on the other side of the end of that relationship. So they don't, the the two people in that marriage, like your marriage, don't talk about it. Don't directly address it again, because the stakes are too high. This is also the kind of circumstance where people often do what they need to do in order to stay married and stay sane, which is, of course, to cheat, to discreetly get needs met elsewhere. Uh, You know, when the opportunity presents itself for you to do that in such a way and with such a person that it would never, hopefully, get back to your husband. And giving yourself permission to you know, if the planets should all align at some point to explore kink with someone else safely and discreetly, telling yourself that, even if you never act on it, may make you less likely to recklessly engineer or seize an opportunity that may come your way involving someone or at some time where your husband is likely to find out about it. Sometimes people seek that out. The husband or wife likely to find out about the infidelity, infidelity, because subconsciously they're slamming their hand down on the self-destruct button or the eject button and they want out of this relationship, out of this marriage, but they don't want to be perceived as wanting out of it. They don't want to ask for out. They want to be heaved out. So they cheat recklessly. And sometimes that's a subconscious decision and sometimes that's a real asshole move, conscious decision to force the other person's hand You had a conversation with your husband at the beginning of the relationship, early in the relationship, where you asked for openness, some degree of openness or monogamish, because you weren't even then, it sounds, super attracted to him. And you hope the kids, having kids together would change that. Yeah, having kids together never changes that, makes that worse. Kids are a wedge that you drive into your relationship and it's got to be strong or it's not going to survive the fissures and cracks that parenting together will open up in any relationship. I'm sorry, but for you to stay married, stay sane, stay happy, you're going to have to issue an ultimatum about opening the relationship, being allowed to explore the sex that interests you with someone or someone's else who are interested in the same kind of sex that interests you, or you're going to wind up cheating. And if you wind up cheating, I would really urge you 
So do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane, but do what you need to do with the cheating to protect your husband and protect your kids and your family if that's what you want to do. You know, the, the best way to protect your kids and your family and your husband is not to cheat at all and stew in sexlessness and a, a growing resentment, which makes you likelier to seize an opportunity that may come your way that is likely to blow everything up. I think the conscious, thoughtful, shitty thing to do is better than the bottled up, pressurizing, shittier thing to do. But that's just me, and I'm a moral monster in some people's opinions. But yeah, what I always come to is that sometimes cheating is the least worse option for all involved. This may be one of those times. Also, divorce is an option. Your kids are 8 and 10. Uh, lots of people, kids at that age, parents divorce and the kids are fine. You know, better for kids to go through an amicable divorce or their parents to go through an amicable divorce when they're 8 and 10 than for those kids to go through or to suffer through or witness a very contentious, high-conflict divorce when they're 12 and 14 because it comes out that mom's been cheating for four or five years and dad just found out. And yeah, and that's the end. Ugh. So there are all sorts of difficult options in front of you. The most ethical option is to go to your husband and issue the ultimatum and tell him that for this marriage to continue, for you to stay in it, for your family to stay together, it's got to be open. And if it can't open, then it's over. Uh, hello, Dan. I have a question. I'm a gay man in my late 50s. Way back in the mid-1990s, I had a boyfriend. This lasted about a year and a half. We broke up. After we broke up, we had sex a few times. And then at some point, the ex-boyfriend said, yeah, we shouldn't do this anymore. And, you know, I didn't press it. I just said, okay, I, I, that's fine. I said, but if, you know, if you ever change your mind, I'm willing. Anyway, you know, fast forward 25 or so years, I still have a relationship with this man. We're friends. We live far apart, so we don't see each other very often. But I do call him up every once in a while and say, hey, I'm coming to town. Can I crash at your place a night or two? <laughs> And this happened recently that I was staying in his apartment and it, the topic got on to his sex life and basically the lack thereof. Anyway, I was wondering if this comes up again, should, should I remind him that I said, if you ever change your mind, I'm willing to have sex again. I figure either he doesn't remember me saying that or he remembers and just still is not interested or maybe some other reason, or, or should I just let sleeping dogs lie? What do you think? Well, it depends. It depends if you want dick, his dick in particular, more than you want to avoid possibly being rejected at his hands again, the humiliation of being rejected by him again, the weirdness, weird, 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 weirdness that might creep in to your interactions with him now if you remind him of that offer from 25 years ago that I'm kind of sure I would go out on a limb and say unless he was real drunk or real high when you made that offer and there's a chance he might not recall it for that reason, I'm going to go out on a limb and say he remembers. And it could be that he brought up his lack of a sex life now and his unhappiness now, not to broach the subject of possibly having sex with you, but 
in a way to reinforce uh, how he sees your relationship now, which is friends and confidants who may complain to each other or uh, share with each other details of their sex life, complain with each other about their sex life, share details about their sex life because they don't have a shared sex life because you aren't having sex together. But nothing ventured, nothing gained, no risk, no reward. It's possible that he would be down. He could be sitting there thinking, well, it's been 25 years since he told me that he would be willing to sleep with me again. Surely his feelings may have changed and he doesn't want to raise the subject because he doesn't want to risk embarrassment, risk rejection, risk the humiliation of you turning around and saying, oh yeah, yeah, I said that 25 years ago. I don't feel that way anymore. So yeah, I think there's a small chance that you're both sitting there wanting each other's dick and hanging back and Nobody's saying anything because nobody wants to be the one who made things weird, who got rejected, who felt humiliated. And so, brace yourself. If you're going to say something to him, you should be braced that the answer, which was no a long time ago, may still be no. But the answer may be yes. What percentage chance of a yes makes the risk of a no worth it. If it's a 10% chance of yes and 90% no, are those odds worth the potential rejection, humiliation, embarrassment, weirdness? If so, if not, well then 30, 70, 50, 50, figure it out. Decide what odds make it worth your while to give it a chance and then do a clear, cold-eyed, right after you've jacked off assessment of what realistically those odds might be. And then say it or don't say it. You might want to say it in an email or a text message. You might not want to say it while you're sitting in his apartment next time, six months or a year from now, when you visit town again, so that the next time you have visited town, you can have fully processed and worked through the weirdness, the embarrassment, the hurt, the rejection. And before you come to town next time, if he said no, if he said no, you can tell him that yeah, it doesn't have to be weird that you heard his no 25 years later after you heard the no the first time and you still do want to be his friend. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some of this week's listener tweets. Sam Lane tweets, small niggle with something you said on episode 801, Dan, kids are not special needs. They may have special needs, but it's not what or who they are. We don't say cancer kid or downs kid, for example, and we shouldn't say special needs kid either. Thanks for pointing that out, Sam Lane. I will try to remember that and do better. Warming his heart tweets, my boyfriend developed a hematoma a week after top surgery, and the only thing getting me through not being allowed to see him due to COVID restrictions while he's hospitalized is fake Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast. Thank you for helping me keep it together, Dan, while my boyfriend is on the brink of bursting. All right, usually a boyfriend on the brink of bursting is a good thing, but definitely not a good thing when it's a hematoma we're talking about that could burst. So we're all wishing your boyfriend a speedy recovery, warming his heart, and here's hoping you guys are back together again very soon and burst in in good ways. And finally, Sinead tweets, to the girl in episode 799 of the Savage Lovecast worried about a rebound relationship, it may technically be a rebound relationship, but it could also be your best relationship. Happened to me in the love of my life, go for it. That was my advice to that caller, go for it. But if the caller didn't listen to me when I told her to go for it, here's hoping she listens to you, Sinead. And your tweet got me thinking, rebound relationships. We all know what those are. We know what that means, a new relationship 
that started right after you got out of an old relationship. But sometimes people don't get out of that old relationship before they start the new one. We don't call those pre-bound relationships, but it seems to me that maybe we should. All right, thanks to everybody who posted your social media this week about the Lovecast, to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. We really appreciate everybody who helps spread the word about the Lovecast. And if you want me to read your tweet on next week's episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now, listener response calls. This is a message for the mom in episode 801 who was contemplating polyamory in the future with her husband. I highly recommend that during this time where you guys are closing up your relationship for right now, take the time to read up uh, some books, podcasts, find Instagram pages on polyamory and start discussing them with your husband and start like sharing information and doing the work together um, so that you guys can be stronger for each other in the future. And so that when the time comes to really open up, you guys already have absorbed enough polyamory theory and made it your own based on the needs. And, you know, it's always a rough start. There's some really hard parts about being polyamorous. But um, if you have a supportive partner like your husband has shown himself to be, then you guys have nothing to be afraid of. Hello, Dan. I am calling in regards to episode 801 and the caller who was looking for help finding clothing that they thought would express who they are and and how they felt about their identity, etc. My best advice for that, because that's always been something that was important to me, is to see if you can find a seamstress or a tailor who can make clothing for you. I know at first this sounds sort of absurd and costly, and um, it can be, but I've been doing this since I was in high school. My sister-in-law, she and I used to design clothes and make clothes for me. We would get patterns and then we'd buy the wrong kind of fabric or then we'd take off a collar or put a pocket over here or switch something. And I always had clothing that felt customized and, and felt like it really expressed who I was. And I continued to do that throughout my life. It can be costly, but I have to say that it's worth it. If you if you really have an idea of something that you want to wear and it's impossible to find, sometimes I've purchased like two shirts and had my seamstress take the sleeves off of one shirt and put them on the other because that's what I wanted. Even if you get one thing, like just imagine if you had the perfect, perfect shirt that really was like, this is me, and it really speaks to who I am and how I want to present to the world. It's a start. Hey, Dan, this is a response call for the woman in episode 801 who is sober and dating, not looking for anything serious. Something that I feel like you missed out here was that it's a weekend because it's Super Bowl Sunday, and it sounds like they hung out Friday, And then Saturday, and then she wanted to hang out Sunday again. She said she wasn't looking for anything serious. And I know for me, when I'm just starting to date somebody, especially if it's under the context of being more casual, um, them asking to hang out every night of a weekend right off the bat when we meet uh, raises a bit of a yellow flag for me. In addition, she said drinking wasn't a problem as long as they were sober around her. Maybe a weeknight, you know, maybe this guy has a stressful job and he likes to drink with his buddies on the weekend. He has people in from out of town, you know, maybe try again on a weekday or think about your expectations with new people dating and 
seeing them every single day and whether that really translates to something more casual like what you're looking for. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's show or a comment about something I said on this week's show? Think you can give better advice? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. This Thursday is Sack Lunch, my monthly Zoom hangout exclusively for Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers, where I take Magnum subs questions live and give Magnum subs the chance to spar with me about the advice I give to others and to give some advice themselves. If you're already a Magnum sub, well, first off, thank you very much. You will receive the Zoom link Thursday morning. If you're not a Magnum sub, this is the perfect time to sign up so you can join in the fun of this week's Sack Lunch. Go to savage.love slash lovecast to become a Magnum sub today. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage, and you can find Dr. Susan McDonald's case study on urology case reports. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Artunian and me and the tech savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.